Welcome to Hope for the Heart. Thank you for joining us today as we continue on this journey of teaching through the book of Revelation. I'm taking it verse by verse as we work our way through. I am now finishing up chapter 3 today of the book of Revelation. And so uh, I'm excited to be here for this chapter, uh, last part of chapter 3, and also getting ready for chapter 4. What a tremendous challenge this is to be able to teach from this book. So to give it context, I would like to, uh, if you have a Bible want to follow along, I'm going to be reading the verses today from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, and I'll go for nine verses through verse 22 to give it the context so you'll know what we'll be speaking about today. And the title of the message today is, Does Your Church Make God Sick? Does your church make God sick? Sounds like an awful kind of a title, but it is very possible. We'll see that in the message today. So to give it context, look at Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 14, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich in white garments, that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, we're in one of these uh, letters to the uh, seven churches of Asia Minor. We've been on this. This is the seventh letter to the churches of Asia Minor. And we're wrapping up this section of Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. You remember uh, the command to write in chapter 1, uh, verse 19, was that John was told to write the things which he have seen, and that was chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And then he was told to write... The things which are, and that is where we are now. We're finishing up the things that are relate to the church age, and so we are going. We've gone through chapter two. We're finishing up chapter three, and then we will begin next week looking at the third part of this command to write in chapter one, verse nineteen, where it says, "And the things which shall take place after these things." So the things that take place after the church age will begin in Revelation chapter 4. And it seems to be that uh, so many people tend to forget that command to write because it is very clear when you lay this out that the things that happened in chapter 4 through chapter 19 
of Revelation come after the church age. So again, these churches were established under the influence, uh, basically, of the church of Ephesus in Paul's missionary journey. A a period of time from Ephesus, the word of God, the gospel, uh, went throughout that region. We're not even told all the churches that begun, but we know that many churches were begun, and these are some of the samplings of these churches. Uh, The Word of God spread throughout Asia Minor. It spread along main roads, or what many writers call the postal route, from city to city, and these seven churches were established. Now remember, these are seven actual churches, historic churches that have been in existence about 30 years or so by the time the Lord has sent these letters to them. Uh, And so he gave them to... John on the island of Patmos and then distributed to the church by representatives or messengers from those churches who came to John and took back the book of Revelation and these letters. So Laodicea is the last of the seven churches. I find it most fascinating church. Uh, It's the last on that postal route. And I'm sure there were probably other churches, but these are the seven that have been chosen to receive these letters. Again, these are types of churches, and I truly believe that each of these churches represents a period of time in the church age, uh, of which when we look at this, I think the two last churches uh, that we're looking at, the last one today and then the one last week, I think refer to this age uh, of of the church age when we look at uh, the message to the church last week to Philadelphia, and I think the message to Laodicea. I think both of those pretty much represent the churches in our age of which we are living now. But this church of the Laodicean is the last one. And I want to just give you a couple of things so that you can begin to understand and relate to this because it, it gets to I know I go rather fast through here. But I want you to understand, when we come to this church, we're coming to a church of unbelievers. It would be what we could call an unsaved church or an unchristian church. This church is is totally made up of non-believers. As far as we know, there are none in there, by the way the Scripture speaks. Laodicea has the uh, very weird distinction of being the only church to which Christ says nothing good about. In all these other six, we've seen different things that were good. Uh, He's uh, unsparing condemnation, no redeeming feature. This is a false church. Now, I know it's called a church, and out of the mouth of the Lord, he sends this message through John to this church. But it's because they call themselves a church. But this is a false church, an unregenerate church. It's an unredeemed church. I know that when Sardis, we talked about the church of Sardis being a dead church, it was dead, but as a testimony, there were still a few believers there, and they get addressed in that letter. But not in this case. This is a different church. This is a threatening, rebuking, the most threatening and rebuking letter yet to these seven. And it's an amazing that this church is, is a very proud church, proud and unconverted. And so I think with that in mind, we can begin to look at how this church uh, letter is being received. Now remember now, this is written by the Lord himself, d- given to John. 
and taken back and expected to read in the congregation. So as we go through this, think about the church hearing this being read and what you would be thinking along those lines. So I'll notice the introduction in chapter 3, verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, or the messenger, the amen, the faithful true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. This is the designation. The Lord is writing this letter. He introduces himself in each of these letters uh, by referencing his deity. Most of these phrases come out of chapter 1, the vision that John saw, but they're references to his identity. And he has three different things that he says here, and you can see them listed in verse 14. The, the amen, that's one. The faithful and true witness, that's two. And then the number three, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, what do these mean? Let me just give you these pretty quick. The amen, what does that mean? Well, it actually means, or I think it comes from a, a passage of Scripture, and I think uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones references this, Isaiah 65, 16. It says, the God of amen, the God of amen. What does amen mean? Well, we use it all the time. If you were to say to somebody, what does it mean? Well, we, we, we sing it, we say it, but the word amen is often used in Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. It's an affirmation. It's kind of a verbal guarantee that what has been said is true. So our Lord is firm, He's fixed, He's certain, He's faithful, He's unchangeable, he is the unchangeable amen because he is true all the time in every way. But the second way he identifies himself is he is the faithful and true witness. He is a faithful and true witness. It, uh, it just further takes this amen and it makes it or it elucidates it even further. Not only does he validate what God has said and what God has promised, but whatever he says is true. What, whatever God affirms is true. If he speaks, it is faithful and true. He is completely trustworthy. He's perfectly accurate. He's reliable. He's dependable. He is, as John chapter six, uh, John chapter fourteen says, the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, he is the perfect witness. And so, with this in mind, we have the third thing that he designates himself or describes himself. And it, this is an unusual and hard to translate. Uh, I have not tried to translate this because I just take these writers' word for it. Uh, but I did a lot of translating when I was in seminary out of the book of Revelation. And I thought most of what I did in Revelation was difficult. But this in verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God. It really parallels with Colossians chapter 1 where it says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. This one almost says that. But the way you have to translate this wouldn't even make sense if I were to read it to you right now. But it means that he is basically the, the first or the premier one of all creation. Doesn't mean he was created. It means he is the premier one of all of the creation. More than that, by him, he actually created all things. You see, God is everything. Christ is everything of God. All that God is. He is the creator. He is the author of life, spiritual, physical. So when it says he is the beginning of the creation of God, we interpret as the primary one. He is the source of all creation, John tells us in chapter 1. Everything that was made was made by him. And without him, was not anything made that was made. He is the leader or the premier one. Now, 
I think it's very important to take a quick look at this because in all of these seven letters, he designates himself or characterizes himself or identifies himself based on how he's going to speak to this church. So in this way, you think, well, why is he establishing this? Why is he referring to his deity or his identity in this way? And I think it's because of the heresy that was being proclaimed in that church of unbelievers. I think Christologically, it was a heresy infiltrated from the Colossian church. And uh, we have this. In fact, I, I want to just read to you a verse of Scripture found in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Because when you read in Colossians chapter 4, it, it reads very interesting uh, related to the, the heresy at that, at that particular time. So listen to Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, as I, as I read that to you. Chapter 4, verse 16 says this. And when, this is Paul saying, And when this letter is read among you, meaning the church at Coloss, Coloss, the Colossian believers were to read this in their congregation. He says, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. That's this church we're talking about in Revelation. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now that was a, another letter that we don't have, but he's talking about this heresy that is taking place in the city of the Colossian believers were. And so it becomes very interesting that that kind of Theology, or wrong theology, was infiltrating the whole area back then. And it uh, portrays such a heretical view of Christ. And remember, it may have started out as a church, the church of Laodiceans at the time of Paul. We don't even know that. We have really nothing about the history there. But by the time John sends this message, that church had become a totally unsaved church. They did not believe that Christ was the, uh, the first of all creation. They did not believe anything about Christ in relation to what he is re- referring to in the book of Revelation chapter, chapter 3. And so I think he's designated in identifying himself in this way because he's refuting the bad theology or Christology at that particular time. So here at the very outset, this powerful Christological statement that demonstrates to us that the church in Laodicea, Laodicea had, had erred in their view of Christ. In other words, they were not accurate at all. And, and it's just a, a tremendously negative effect on a church and the teaching if they're wrong about who Christ is. So that gives you the introduction here. Now I want to move into to verse 15. Uh, but by doing that, I want to look at the city. There's, I'm not going to say a lot about the city because it just takes up too much time. But it's located like the rest of these seven churches. It's, it's known for a lot of things. It's an important city. It's where they said there's a lot of travel was moving through the city. Uh, it has a large Jewish population and it was a very wealthy city. Uh, the features of that city were in such a way that the, the water becomes, becomes an important aspect of this letter. Uh, their riches become an important aspect of this letter. And so Laodicea was famous for the wool industry. Uh, the city also gained much respect and honor for its medical school. 
And so this wealth in the city evidently carried right into the church. And that attitude found its way permeating the church. And the heresy coming with it concerning the nature of Christ found its way into the church. So soon after the church was founded, it becomes a church of non-believers. There's no record of the founding of this church. We only have what we read from uh, uh, the book of Colossians and then a few other places about what was very was ha- actually happening in this church. But they have a long history. It's a very sad history. It started out a spiritual life, probably a, a church beginning, uh, like in many churches begin, are excited. But then it, it, uh, it, I guess, just passed away as far as uh, all the believers were gone and it's left with all unbelievers. You say, well, how can this happen? I mean, how does a church do that? How does a church go from a thriving a church uh, to a, a non-existent church as far as believers involved in the church? Well, I think it's, I think it's a process. I think it's a process of, of the church allowing uh, philosophy and worldly views coming in. I think they begin to be influenced by money and by popularity of people and leaders that are not church leaders, and they uh, begin to take over the church and run it basically the way they want to run it. So this is a church that is uh, full of unbelievers, but I want you to notice now, uh, and the, uh, I've given you the writer a little bit about the city, nothing really about the church, but I want to give you the comments. Uh, Jesus makes some tremendous comments here, and they become very important for understanding this church. And the comments, I think, are seven. I'm going to break them down because each little comment means something. The first comment is found in verse 15. And I want you to look at verse 15 of Revelation chapter 3. It says, I know your deeds. Now, I know your deeds. That's all it says. I know your deeds. Now, uh, there's no command. There's no condemnation. Just, I know your deeds. Well, we, we look at Christ and we know who Christ is. And even in the vision that, that John had of Christ in chapter 1, we see the piercing eyes of like a flame of fire. Christ does know everything about the individual and the church as well. He knows full well because he is the sovereign God who is knows all things. Christ knows everything. And he says, I know your deeds universally, collectively, uh, of course he does, because he is God. We would expect him to say that. But verse 15, he expounds on this by looking at how he expounds on this comment, I know your deeds, and then he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. goes through verse 16. And so they are... Not, but here, here's the way I think you can understand this little bit of a information. Uh, he says, uh, you're, you're, so because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will, and basically it says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I hate that's disgusting kind of language, but this is the most strong statement the Lord has made to any church in these letters yet. You make me vomit. I know you. This is Christ speaking. This is not... Paul speaking or John speaking or someone who's just been traveling through the city. This is the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I know you. I know what you are. You make me sick. That's basically what he is saying. You're lukewarm. You make me sick. Now, what's behind that statement is that lukewarm is really the, what I, 
is reference to the city and the water supply there in the city. Uh, if it water were coming from uh, Colossae, it, it would be cold and cool water. But if it's coming from another area where they would get water, it is it would should be hot water. But they they because of the way they had to run the water in there, it becomes a foul water, and it, it's contrasted to. Uh, the two cities, one before and one after, in that kind of water because it comes in as foul and has to travel through an underground pipes. Uh, and it's, it's not really cold and it's not really hot. It be, has become lukewarm. And I think this is the way Christ is referencing these, this church to that kind of water. You make me sick. Now, I'm not going to get into what the hot is or the cold is. I think it's pretty clear here that the uh, the water supply there is being referenced here. But mainly, he's referencing the people in this church. You make me sick. Now, I just have to pause right here. Do you think there are churches today? If there was in the first century, this was around 90 to 100 A.D., There were churches that made the Lord sick, and I imagine all through church history there's been many hundreds of churches. You see, that church made the Lord sick. But what about churches today? Can a church today make the Lord Jesus sick? Well, I think there are probably thousands of churches, even today, that make the Lord sick. They make the Lord sick. They nauseate Christ. You know, in some ways there's... Always hope for a church that has some believers in it. But uh, I, I'll never forget once hearing John MacArthur say that he believes in your typical church across America today, about 70% of the church are lost. And that would only leave 30% of the church as true believers. And I thought, well, okay, let's just say he's mistaken and and 50% of the church is lost. Man, that's outrageous. you know they're involved in leadership and decisions for the church. And so I think it's it's, it's terrible to think that any loss would be in there as part of the church makeup or the leadership. Uh, But there's something that's going on here because he says that there's none in this church. There's not one single believer in this church. And we see evidence of that all through this letter. Christ isn't even in this church. The worst of all possible representations of a church is just sickening. And I don't think you need to try to allegorize the hot or the cold. It's just that this church has no purpose. Their doctrine can't be right. There is no conviction there. There is no true assessment there. In fact, we see that in verse 17. So the first part of the command is verse 15, first command. But the second command is found in verse 17. It says, Because you say, I am rich, you have become wealthy and have needed nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the next statement. So in other words, they're deceived. They're, they're, they're sickening hypocrites. They don't even know what they have or not have. And this is a reference, again, to unbelievers. Uh, this is their true condition. They think they're a wealthy church. Money has infiltrated them. They, they, they're in a wealthy city. Probably a lot of money is pouring in. And they see the riches and they're depending on the riches and the wealth. And they tend to relate that to themselves. This is the worst state a person could be in. It would be better uh, to be an atheist, as one writer puts it. Better to be completely ignorant of the church 
in the gospel than to be in this kind of a situation where they are characterized uh, by how they feel or the entertainment or the wealth that is there. This characterizes the entire church. And it's sad to say, but there, this, this goes across America today. Even to today, I think there are so-called Christian universities and seminaries uh, they think they're rich materially. They think they're rich in spiritual knowledge. And they have elevated knowledge. They don't know their own condition. And yet their own condition is probably spiritually empty. They have nothing here. Uh, the condition that comes to anybody who has a wrong view of Christ, uh, and, I, I know, and I could name denominations. I, I don't have any sense in doing that right now. But how do we know... These are unbelievers. Well, I want you to look at this, this verse 17, because this is characteristic. There's nothing you can do with these words to make them Christian. Christians are not wretched, miserable, poor, blind, or naked. So when you're asking, who are these people? This is why I say these are unbelievers, because of this designation. This is describing the people in this church. They are non-Christians in a church where all are non-Christians. It's a sickening condition of thinking they're spiritually rich. It's a condition of the church is non-believers. In reality, these kinds of churches are usually the proudest of churches. They're the proudest of churches. They think they're rich. They think they're clothed. Uh, fine. They think they don't need anything. They have no idea of their condition. And so he gives uh, the next command is actually advice. Look at what he says in verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold uh, refined by fire that you may become rich, white garments that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And all this is just a designation to say uh, this is a, an extenuating uh, uh, an invitation for salvation. In other words, you don't need to depend on the money. What you can get from Christ is free. He's advising them, come to Him. I advise you to come to me. Here is grace offered to hypocrites. It's not surprising. The Lord in Isaiah 55 says, come without money, without price, and buy. You think you can buy anything you want? You've got it all. You need nothing. What you really need comes from me, Christ. Come and buy without price, without money, without works. But it is so hard. It's like the world just cannot accept that fact. They cannot come to him. Come to me and buy the true tested and clothe yourself in white. Again, this is a reference to uh, coming to me and I'll make you uh, clean. Your garments will be clean. It's salvation. He's talking about salvation and this is an extended offer of salvation to this church. But I want to move on because of time here. But I want you to see, uh, look at verse 19. He makes another comment here in relation to those. Those whom I love, I re- reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He's uh, The first statement has caused some people to think he's talking to Christians here. But the context just does not allow the fact that he's talking to Christians. It's just, an axiomatic, it's just an axiomatic statement about God in Christ. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline with uh, no different than to say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's an offer of salvation to these people. He loves the world and is offering salvation to them. So uh, he says, be zealous and repent. 
Uh, again, it's a call to salvation here. It's a decisive act. Do it with all your might. Do it with your heart. He's saying repent. The message to the unsaved church in this Laodicean age is repent and do it fast. Now I want to look at verse 20 for the fifth comment. I stand at the door and knock. And this is, this is a verse I have heard all my life. And I know I've always heard it applied wrong. It's always uh, salvation is always uh, referred to in, in the Baptist churches that I attended. All of them that I attended used that as a reference. Revelation 3.20 is Jesus standing and knocking on a door and he's waiting for you to open the door uh, and invite him into your heart. But that's not the context here. I stand at the door. And who's he talking about? Him's talking about himself, Jesus. The door of what? It's not the door of your heart. It's the door of the church. I stand at the door of your church and I knock. In other words, is there anyone who will hear my voice and open the door? I will come into him and will dine with him. This is the church that Christ is not in. This is how we know it is an unsaved church. Christ is not in this church. This is the door of the church where Christ says, I will come into your church. He's, he was in the church in Sardis, and I think there's thousands of churches that have not let Christ in because there's no believers in there. Christ is outside. Uh, I go by, uh, and I know I see so many and I read of so many churches uh, where Christ's name might be in the church or they have some kind of spiritual name in there. But that doesn't mean Christ is in the church. It doesn't mean Christ is in the church because you can walk in and they're singing words about Christ or they're singing praises. The knock in this letter is Christ saying, I will come in if someone, anyone hears my voice, meaning the assessment of the spiritual condition that I have just described and is willing to repent with zeal, if someone will open the door and be saved, I will come into the church. So it's, it's, it's really, uh, there again, it's an appeal. This is one final plea, one last plea. So our Lord stands knocking on the door of Laodicean church, and he's outside, like many churches, knocking to see if there's someone that will open that door. Because no one hears his voice. No one knows he's there. And so the next command, a comment, is, is the sixth comment. Look at verse 21. And verse 21 is, uh, uh, it says, He who overcomes, not these who are in this church, but he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, this is, uh, uh, we, we've looked at this in all the letters. Who is the one who overcomes? John 1 John 5, 5, our faith. He who overcomes, referring to our faith. If you believe, you will not only come in and sit with, with fellowship with him, but I will grant to that person who comes into faith to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with him on his throne. So chapter 1, we, uh, that he has a throne. We know that God has a throne, and the throne of God and the throne of Christ become the throne of the repentant believer. This is the supreme elevation of, uh, to humility, uh, to have dignity of sitting on the throne of God and the throne of Christ. We don't receive a kind of minimal salvation. Man, this is extraordinary salvation. And so we look at this, and then he brings us into verse 22. He who has ears to hear, 
It says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is saying, basically, are you listening? Do you hear what the Spirit of God is saying uh, to the churches? And the only way that can happen is if you have a genuine relationship with Christ. You see, a dead church or a church of unbelievers is a church that cannot hear. And I, I know this gets to be confusing sometimes to make statements like this, but they are fully supported in the Scriptures. A person who is not a Christian cannot pray and be heard of God. God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous. I know that's difficult to understand, but He does not hear them. Until you have experienced regeneration, until you have been saved, then your spirit comes alive. Then you are able to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He hears you. He responds to you. You then are capable of receiving spiritual communication between you and God. And if there's no one in a church, I don't care what they call themselves, what kind of music they play, how great the soloist or how great the teacher is, without that regeneration of the believers or the hearts in there, Christ is not in that church. So again, I want to ask you, does your church make God sick? And the only way that can be no is if your church is glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, is your church full of true worshipers? You know, one of the hardest things I think in Christendom today is understanding what really worship is. And I'm no expert on, on identifying worship, but I, I don't think it's necessarily what we see in so many churches. I think a lot of what you see in churches today is pure entertainment. You know, they can play the songs, they can do all they want to do. And the thing that I hear from these churches is the music is always too loud. And there's uh, always confusion. There's always uh, this thing about, well, I'm not even going to get there. Uh, I don't need to go into all that, but I, I just say it's, it, this is a warning to us. I can't say who is a, a church of unbelievers or not. I just I don't see the hearts. I do not know. But I know that since they were in the first century, they must be in our current time. I see evidences of it, that we have thousands of churches that are perhaps just as unbelieving as this church of Laodicea is and was. So I, I believe that this, this passage, verses 14 through 22, ought to be a warning to us. Are we in the right church? Is our church actually worshiping and teaching the Word of God? Does our church actually believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and that it speaks with truth and sincerity and is faithful to be true to all, and it is truth, that God is the truth? Is your church teaching that? Uh, you, and how you answer that is, has to be very carefully asked and answered. But ask it and find the answer to that. Thank you again today for joining us for Hope for the Heart. And remember, next week we'll begin chapter 4, and that's when we see John taken straight into heaven, and we're going to see what he sees. Thank you. Talk to you next week.